to Discography, the music podcast that delivers the objective truth about the entire discography of every single artist and band that ever existed. I'm your host, Dave Gebro, and in this episode, we'll be turning our spray cans back for the sixth time on Pavement. These six episodes have been called from eight hours of interviews with band member Bob Nastanovich, and I really hope you've dug them. Now, Bob, as you know, rhymes with job, so I'm going to come clean here, guys and gals. I quit mine while putting the Pavement series together, because I do just about everything here, from obtaining the guests to doing all the social media, all the recording and editing, you name it. The last six weeks of my career as a hearing instrument specialist was spent literally editing and promoting the Pavement series eight and a half hours a day, nonstop, until there was nothing left to do but leave. So why am I telling you this? because I'm doubling down on Discograffiti. My wife and three-year-old son are doubling down on Discograffiti. We're selling our house and planning on living as cheaply as possible on the East Coast, and all of that just to ensure that Discograffiti becomes the standard bearer for all that is awesome about music. So don't go anywhere when this episode's done. Subscribe. Coming up, we have two weeks of Lou Barlow rating the zombies, then three weeks of Jim Florentine rating Black Sabbath, which kicks off on Halloween, two weeks of Randy Randall from No Age rating Jesus Lizard, and on and on and on. Here's what I'd love for you to do. Please join our Facebook group, Discograffiti Soldiers of Sound. We're also on Instagram and Twitter. Also, please rate the podcast five stars along with a beautifully worded review, especially if you're listening to the show on good old Amazon Music or, of course, Spotify. It'll help a lot. The link to our legendary playlist is in the show notes and also on our website at discograffiti.com. And if you're like me and enough's just never enough, then visit patreon.com slash discograffiti and become one of our Patreon soldiers of sound. Our Patreon feed is the ultimate music deep dive. I post three shows a week, the main show on Sunday, then Discograffiti's The Private Press with Paul Major on Tuesdays, and a Thursday wildcard episode, which is either an interview with that week's guest, or one of our other offshoot shows like Rock Cousteau, Queasy Listening, and Battle Royale. So hey, try it for a month, you've got nothing to lose. Okay, back to business. First things first, you need to know just how seriously I take this craziness. Discograffiti is heavily researched, and the music is always reassessed with fresh ears. We're not just covering albums. Uh Uh-uh. We do a searingly honest deep-dive analysis of all EPs, singles, comp tracks, relevant solo work, and bootlegs. Every release is slapped with an objectively accurate star rating between 0 and 5, which allows us all to come face-to-face with the true shape of an artist's overall arc. And away we go, then, with Pavement Part 6, Good night to the rock and roll era. And now we're going to jump headfirst into a track-by-track overview of their final LP, Terror Twilight. Kicking off with Bob and I going head-to-head on the relative merits of the first single from the record, Spit on a Stranger. The cool thing about this song is that, to me, this is adult contempo pavement. But it still is excellent and dignified and graceful with both turn of phrase and melody, and it works. It's a great song. It's a great single in 1999 on an indie rock record. It, I mean, no, it's just, no, it's a great song. It, it really is. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I, yeah. I think uh, it's good. It's got a really good vibe and it's, it's, it's just a good pop song. 
you know, it's also strange to try and reconcile the fact that this is the band I fell in love with seven years earlier, the same band. But there you go. That's one of the great things about it's one of the reasons why I do this show. It's incredible that it's the same fucking band that, you know, threw down uh, Trigger Cut. Great song, Folk Jam, another. But if Trigger Cut had been recorded in this studio by in this with this kind of processing with, with Nigel Godrich said it would it could have easily fit on this record. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, spin on a stranger. We wouldn't have had a song like that back then, but you know, and that, that sort of shows like, you know, now being 30 something and, you know, being around for a while, that kind of thing. Folk jams probably always been my, I think that's always been my favorite song on this record. Yeah. It's a really cool song. It's really, really fun. I, the band, you know, the band, like the words, everything's. It's just a cool song, and again, it was. It's a little outside the typical pavement box. You know, I thought "You Are a Light" should have been a little bit more edited and shorter because, like, the best aspects of the song are really good, um, but then there's some miss in there, and it's a little bit corny lyrically to me. But that's whatever. I mean, I wasn't writing the lyrics. I mean, you know. I think overall, Stephen's lyrical content, pavement as a whole, is pretty awesome. Oh yeah, <laughs> I, I'm a music lover and I'm a and I'm a writer. I don't usually pay attention to to lyrics. Uh, I mainly am a music guy, but you know, with Stephen, it's like you know, you kind of have to. Uh, you he's really good. do. Yeah, he's yeah. good. He's really good. Uh, and you are a light. Yeah, it's fucking you know, drenched to the bone with fucking middle of the road adult contemporary sappiness, and it's I think it's great. I love you are a light. I, I don't really give a fuck that it is so pussy like as far as, you know, when you put it next to anything else that you guys used to do. The uh, also the Nigel Godrichy and spooky guitar touches in the chorus are, are really cool. That uh, works. The way it really masterfully builds to that final section. It truly is amazing. And it really takes you by surprise when all of a sudden you're in the middle of a crunchy stomper and way far away from the ballad. That's it's a really I just, good I just wish that I mean I, I just I think there's some fat that could have been trimmed off of it. Yeah. Well, speaking of fat, cream of gold is an absolute no thank you from me. Oh yeah, cream of gold would have been awesome on like Wowie Zowie or something. Cream of gold suffered in that kind of highly compressed way. Yeah, this uh, is uh, just, I, just uh, the whole thing coming together. Like, what, it makes sense on Terror Twilight. Sometimes it would actually be a uh, good live when it was just way, way rougher. But it just, it just didn't. Sa- it sounded like a, to me it was a miss as well. I agree. Yeah, there's look. I I really like this album, but there's four songs on it that I I don't just dislike. I like. I really don't like them, which is something that I'd never really experienced before. On, a, on another pavement record. That's the only reason why this record's a little tough for me. It's Cream of Gold, Platform Blues, Billy, and Speak See Remember. I just I just can't get with those songs at all. See, some of the some of the most hardcore pavement fans that I know, two of them, one of them, her favorite pavement song is Billy, or top five easily. And then another one, one of his top five, and I'm talking about pavement fans that are, are completists. Right. One of his top five favorite songs is Speak So You Remember. Yeah, now, I, that one especially I can't get with. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of cool to me in a way, actually. I kind of really like the instru- instrumental part. Major Leagues is a song that I've never been a fan of. Um, Platform love, Blues is just so Captain Beefhearty. Wait, hold on, wait let's, stay, let's stay with Major Leagues for a sec. Um, okay. 
more adult contemporary pavement, which is very a very seductive notion to me because it's so fucking worlds and worlds and worlds away of where we started with pavement. I just don't usually like music that's not sappy. Um, so yeah, it's sappy, and and the line relationships, hey, hey, hey. Um, what's good? I love that line has always been so funny to me. If it's, it was somebody else's song, I would wouldn't really like it too much. Uh, so that's that's all I'm going to say about it. I, no, I love it because you know you guys, as far as embodying the slack ethic. There's nothing more lyrically slack than that line in all of existence. You couldn't come up with anything more generic. And in that respect, it's, it doubles up on itself and becomes genius. No, and, I mean, that, I'm happy you like it. Yeah, I love it. I know Platform Blues is just like, a, it's a really tricky song and probably was just, you know, the kind of song where, that Stephen could play that, that was too hard for the band. And that's why it might sound kind of stupid and disjointed. It was very beef hearty and, and that's just too complicated type of thing unless we're practicing all the time we it's not the kind of thing that could have done in a snap like the level of musicianship of the other four people in the band was it was just too tricky and then the same with the performing it live and then sort of interestingly and and don't cry and was that actually, one that one i like by the way i'm a fan of it yeah and's very sweet and simple but and was intentionally made up by steven in contrast to platform blues it's kind of funny that they're back to back on the record um as a song that's so simple that even we could play it and so it was, this was kind of like the first probably the biggest insult actually occurred in portland towards the end of the portland thing in 98 where he was so disappointed with his band and where we were musically that he had to write like really simple songs so we could get it quickly as opposed to struggling with it for days so, um, so. Is, is that is that line is it really a direct reflection of what was happening with the band the damage has been done i am not having fun anymore is it or? i think so yeah i would think so i mean you, you probably wouldn't think of it when you're a part of it but in hindsight I, no, none, of, none of you guys stopped in there and was like uh is that about us dude look we were happy that we could play a song sure i don't I'm, care i don't really, and again like i will only speak for myself and say that it's pretty damn hard to hurt my feelings especially in the context of pavement mm -hmm. i mean pavement is such a fortunate thing and, and everything about it so like you know even if i got kicked out of pavement in 19 95 or 94 or like after gary quit we don't need you anymore it would still i would still just be really fortunate to be a part of it anyway so <laughs> it's it's absurd in a way and plus like you know you deal with a certain amount of you know people tell you that you suck to your face when you're an easy target you know so and that, that's cool with me i think the best way to handle that is just not to argue and say hell you may be right but so, who, yeah who's telling you you suck where's that coming from Oh, no, you just, you know, you, you get like, you know, live reviews and reviews of records, and, you know. Look, as a filmmaker, the day that my uh, my last film came out, there was a review in the New York Times. My mentor figure was and remains John Landis. I remember I called him. I was hysterically crying because they had said something that was not even super directly negative. It just wasn't glowing like I was hoping. And right. they actually had singled me out in my direction and my in my writing capability, and he had to talk me off the ledge. You know, the reviews are tough. That kind of thing yeah. I mean, I'm not, I, I, again, they don't bother me either. You know, at all because, like, you know, 
um, you have to be very conscious of the fact that we're all lucky to be reviewed in the first place. That's true. And but, like so, I was saying, like the thing is, if somebody says it's really, really awful, then that's going could very easily trigger the opposite of somebody's going to you know strongly defend it. But back to "And Don't You Cry," it's just a song that Stephen was so frustrated with his band um, for whatever reason. I think really solely just that it was frustrating to play with people that were so far behind him at this point um, that he, it became very clear to him that he needed to play with more accomplished musicians who were interested in practicing more. And he wanted to practice more because he wanted to be more challenged. He was tired right. of writing um, sort of simple songs and he was more interested in, in a bigger challenge for himself because he'd sort of done everything that he could do within the context of pavement. So therefore the Jicks, which made and perfect it, sense because they're, they're really good musicians and they practice all the time and, and that kind of stuff. And I don't hear a could, huge difference uh, it, just in the sense that like, I don't hear a group of musicians who are all of a sudden playing John McLaughlin. Uh, he just found a different home for his songs, but it doesn't sound like a, a vastly different world. The Steve Malkmus album, the self-titled one, I could easily have seen you guys playing that those same songs. Yeah. And I mean, who knows? I mean, you know, cause when you siphon things through different people, then they sound different. Yeah. So, you know, obviously things, things are like, you know, easier to, to grasp and to play if you're more accomplished. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you just sort of get sick at, at looking around at the same people, I suppose, if you're yeah, yeah. in that position. So I, I personally, I don't, I mean, like I only was really ever in two bands. And again, my position is rather unique because I never had any intentions of being in any <laughs> past the age of 20 two or 23 you know i mean i was always happy to be on the other side in the audience or in the record store I, mean, I started seeing bands when i was a little kid buying records when i was a little kid and it was a huge passion of mine you know djing and, and buying records and listening to records with friends i never had any intention of being in a band so the fact what that i was what was your favorite one growing up the records that really sort of changed my life were like you know, Gang of Four Entertainment and R.E.M. Murmur and Reckoning, yes. Chronic Town. Um, my mid-teens, Double Nickels on the Dime is massive for yep. me. Pagan Icons by Second Trust. But I mean, yeah, it's just like that was one of the great benefits of being born in 1967 is that when I was 12, the Pittsburgh Pirates won the World Series. It was 1979. So for the next 15 to 20 years, there's this incredible deluge of great music coming from so many yep. different genres, you know, like so many things being sort of perfected in their own way and just this kind of complete freakiness going on this complete wild unabandoned freakiness it's funny the last sports team i ever followed was the 1979 yankees so it's funny that you mentioned sports and that <laughs> year and specifically because you know once music and film came along as obsessions it, it snuffed sports for me right snuffed it that was it anyway back to billy yeah i billy has a vibe of not the b-side of abbey road but i don't know if you're familiar with wings red rose speedway no Okay, so it's just like, it feels like a bunch of tracks that weren't finished, that were jammed together. That sort of Paul McCartney style of doing that. Um, I will tell you about Billy real quick. Billy yeah. um, was a great idea for a song, and Stephen, it's always been very awkward for Stephen for some reason that I can't really figure out, because he he wants to play it live, but then he's always happy to skip it. So it must have something to do with this, the vocal performance that's tricky for him. I can't really get it, because we did, we did play it really well, and it, it 
I mean, to me, it's a really good song. Then comes Speak, See, Remember, which is which could very well be my least favorite pavement song ever, because this sounds like <laughs> uh, it sounds like a Broadway musical number with fucking jazz hand shit and stuff like that. So this one is a hard pass every time. I just I try to play it. <laughs> no, thanks. <laughs> no, thanks. But the last two, just just like Bright in the Corners, the last two songs are fucking amazing. First of all, I'm curious, we didn't go into to it a great deal, but with the Hex, how do you feel about Godrich's touches there? I mean, you know, as we, we've talked about the song quite a bit, and I think God, Godrich's touches actually work very well on, on this song. So yeah, he's um, updating a song that I think, I think he did a great job on it. I think that one is super solid. Very, actually would belong on any Halloween mix. Unquestionably, that grave architecture yeah, would be our Halloween. So. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, um, and Carrot Rope, I, I've never liked Tell Me Why You Like It. To me, I, like, I, whereas, I like you don't like, whereas you don't like Speak, so you remember, cause, and I understand the reasons why, because those are accurate disses. I think that um, Carrot Rope is just so corny. It that, is totally corny. so goofy. So like, corny. I mean, it's like... It Dude, makes, it's like, like a it, fucking... It's a Herman Hermit song, for God's sake. Yeah, I just... I, I don't see why people like it. Because... Unless, well, first of all, I don't think it's a major work by you guys. That okay. being said, it is going to be on the playlist. I've always liked it. I don't think it's... Um, I think just precisely the fact that Last Pavement album, Last Pavement song, and yet it's the opposite of a major statement. You know, that's a very Steve Malcolm's kind of a thing, as far as where I'm sitting. I think what it says <laughs> to me, if this is the Last Pavement song on a record that... This is how um, maybe how little Stephen cared about pavement anymore. Right, right. And Are you clipping knows. the toenails or fingernails? No, I'm clipping the corners of this uh, bookmark okay. with toenail clippers just because it's kind of fun. You know, you have not notated yet that I guessed the kind of sandwich. I guess that you were using nail clippers. You know, I'm being very impressive. It is a very unique noise. So, I mean, you are right. Yeah. But no, I'm not actually clipping my um, any, any part of my body. Okay. All right. So, uh, with regard to Terror Twilight, it's weird to me, the mirror reflection between uh, Terror Twilight and Bright in the Corners, how after the scattershot effect of Wowie Zowie, with regard to sequencing, the two records in a row kick off with two super strong songs, and then things are all the F over the place. And then there's the three song punch that I don't like. And then, you know, you got the two solid songs at the end. I feel anyway, you know, honestly, even though I love the record, <clears throat> the, um, you don't love the record. There's no way you can say that at the end of that. You might, no, you no, might no, like no. half the record. You might no, like half I'm the being, record. I'm being harsh because, because I, you guys are a very important band to me. Right. So I'm being unnecessarily. I appreciate that. Thank you. In that light. So, but ultimately I give it three and a half stars and I Ooh. give Wowie Zowie three stars. Uh, okay. Yeah, no, I give this record um, three stars. Uh, to me, it's like, whereas it has five or six really good songs, I think it would have been a really great five or six song EP. Yeah, yeah. Like, well, I think you, if, you, if you made a six song EP, that was spit on a stranger folk jam even though i'm not a huge fan of it i do understand a lot of people like major leagues and then definitely had the hex and then you know go ahead and choose your other song on there and don't cry would be a good last song and or you know whatever i mean if you wanted to make it like project merge or something you could a 45 minute version of tour spiel <laughs> sure <laughs> um, it's like a um to me it's like uh it would have been a great ep that was stretched to an lp because okay 
we're required to make an LP and we've already worked forever on this. So like, just get it over with and then see you later. So we had so much material. It was easy to play it live. I, but, I, def- I defend the record, but ultimately because of- I never thought of that before. Thank you for um, inviting me to discography because uh, I realized this actually would have been a good EP that was made in LP. I wish I would have had the wherewithal to say that back then, but then that idea would have been, are you kidding me? Like, we've got to get this over with. It's got to be full life. Yeah, that probably wouldn't have been graded favorably. But it would have been accurate. I mean, Sometimes it's better to be right, even though you're going to get voted down, right? Even even though it's not my least favorite pavement record, the three songs that I don't like on it, I don't like a lot. And uh, there's also, as much as I like the adult contempo-leaning styles on it more than you do, all of that stuff together leaves me feeling sad about the band even the sprightliness of yeah, i would never feel sadly about pavement well i you know i'm closer to the to the band than you are because you were only in it okay <laughs> <I'm> just, <laughs> uh even the even the sprightliness of carrot rope it comes off to me as great as the song is i feel like as an affectation like a put on i approach it with sadness but ultimately i do like it and i, I mean you, would, you know you, if we'd made another record that was worse or that it was a two-star record, then, you know, it would have sullied your whole impression of Pavement as a whole. And it might have ruined all the things you enjoyed about Pavement in the 90s if we'd gone on and made a six record that was really terrible. You guys are perfect because if you think about it, Stephen built in this ethos to the band about Slack and you know, purposely not living up to potential and things like that, which means that if you ever do bad music, which you haven't yet, you can just say that that's all part of the master plan. So you've built yourself- Yeah, and everybody would be like, what a pile of crap that is. Yeah, but I mean, you built yourself the perfect exit strategy. I never realized it, but I'm not going to argue with you. Let's talk about the outgrowths of the Terror Twilight era. So 1999 Major Leagues EP comes out, which uh, to me feels stopgappy. Am I nailing the the thing on the head with the thing? What was on it? Your Time to Change, Stub Your Toe, Major Leagues Demo, Découvert de Soleil, The Killing Moon, and The Classical. I mean, The Killing Moon and The Classical were, you know, pretty important covers that we, you know, we did both songs live. We did Killing Moon a lot. Yeah, Killing Moon. Um, it was a really pretty fun and easy song to cover by, you know, a band that was a favorite band of four fifths of pavement. Can you name the person that was least into Echo and the Bunny Men? Um, um, is it Mark? Mark, yeah, Mark. Okay. And the classical, of course, was, you know, obviously we're pretty open. Are you, what What kind of Echo uh, Echo and the Bunny Men fan are you? What's your, what's your favorite record, Crocodiles, or do you like... I have it up here. I used to have a radio show when I was 15 with my friend Nordy at University of Richmond. We were the only high school kids that had a college radio show at, at the University of Richmond radio station, and it, it was called the Heaven Up Here Show. Hmm. I mean, that's... It, that's make me cool. Usually with Echo and the Bunny Men, you hear... Or I've heard. Ocean Rain, everything up through Ocean Rain, oh. I, I loved, and Bring on the Dancing Horses. I mean... I got to go with crocodiles and I, and I, yeah, crocodiles are amazing. My favorite, the thing about these guys is that the first song on the first album is so good that I believe they never topped that. The, the, the way that they barreled in as a band, the, the intro of the first song and the way, uh, it's like a mission statement in music only. It gets me every time. You mean going up? Yeah, I mean, going up's an amazing yeah. song. And the whole album's unbelievable. It I mean, is. It is. Pete DeFridis, you know, mm-hmm. was, a, was a, just an amazing drummer that I would love to have seen live. I've seen plenty of live footage. Easily one of Spiral's three favorite bands of all time and a huge favorite of everybody in the band. I, don't, I wouldn't even actually know about 
I will. I just know that, that the other four members, one of their favorite bands of their teenage years and beyond. They're yeah, they're really good. And honestly, you know, they're. I know they're Doors inspired, <laughs> but I like them better than the Doors. I think they're a much more impressive band. Me too. Yeah, the the Doors seemed a little bit like they were play acting. This feels more like I buy it more. Uh, right. So Major League's EP, Your Time to Change. Is that uh, is that Camberg's song? I don't know. I don't okay. know. I don't. I really don't know what it is. Okay. I don't think I actually ever had one of these. I don't think I've ever even seen one. I, w- I would give this two and a half stars. Is what I'm going to go with here. I mean, I can't even really rate it because I don't really know it. But it sounds like the kind of thing that I don't really. I'm not bothered not to have, so I'll give it two. Okay. All right. Is that all right? I, that's acceptable. Sorry Joe. to be complete, completely ignorant okay. on the, the topic. Oh, I've seen that cover, but I've never had one of these. It's okay. You know, like I said, you know, all the early stuff that you guys did, and even during the Cut Your Hair single with Camera and Stare, you know, these were essential releases. You weren't really able to understand the band fully unless you had them. These were now releases that if you didn't have them, there would not be an aspect of the band that you didn't understand. May 24th, 1999 terror twilight is released oh let me let me interrupt you yeah your time to change and stub your toe are both scott songs we definitely oh, never played either thought. live and i've never i've never heard them gary recorded them oh really and it was also two songs that scott made with gary without steven oh that's interesting so this is comp- so i don't really know i should listen to that material just for whatever yeah, reason yeah. <laughs> your time to change Especially, I don't think I think I might have even never heard about those two songs until right now. Listen, it's my duty and responsibility to introduce members of Pavement to material recorded by Pavement. Reluctantly, I, I say I thank you. Yeah, no, this is a this is one of the most inspired and purposeful moments of my entire existence, and for that, you I thank provide you. Provide a very embarrassing service, <laughs> and you can better bet this is going to be the advertisement for the show as well. No worries, no worries. Yeah. <laughs> um, all all right, so I believe the last documented thing that was released on all this, you know, the batches of double CDs and whatnot, June 17th, 1999, live at Irving Plaza in New York City. Uh, you have six oh. songs, you know, six songs, Frontwards, Platform Blues, The Hex, You Are a Light, Folk Jam, and Sinister Purpose. With those six songs, that's where you guys bow out in terms of chronologically uh, your career being what done. is this actual is this a matador product no so this is um part of terror twilight oh, okay so it's part of that terror twilight deluxe edition yeah this is these six songs it's the final chronological material that was released oh, okay that documents you guys i'll so, tell you a cool story about that show please it's probably not so cool but obviously when we play in new york mark's always lived there he's lived there since 1985 it's just kind of his local gig and you know just like everybody that plays in front of a huge amount of their friends a little more self conscious um, regardless of the era of the band or anything to it. at least i could i'll speak for myself and say that i i assume that he is too in fact i'm pretty sure he is so when playing in new york it was always it was kind of like the mindset was always like you know it's especially after steven moved away from there and me as well um and steve west that it was just like you know a big hometown gig for mark and we played a, a pretty good show that night um, the Terror Twilight material was new to us. We hadn't played it live very often and hadn't really gotten a grip on those songs too much. And, you know, we pretty much played like 80% of that record that night and played it as well as we ever had at that point. Our sound man, Remco's Dutch, he'd been with us since 1992 when he became our sound man on the day that we opened for Super Chunk and My Buddy Valentine at the Ritz. And, um, Hmm. So he'd been like kind of like the sixth member of Pavement for a long time. What year was that? 92. 
and he still is our front of house sound man. I've never heard or seen of a sound man doing this. Remco thought we'd played a much better show than we had so far on the tour, and he was he was a good critic of the band. Most of it was constructive criticism. Um, the first thing he ever said to me was like, "I do not see why you're even in this band." So <laughs> he. He picks up the mic after the set and like a thousand or so people came and he was disappointed the way the crowd reacted to the songs. In other words, like most of the Terra Twilight songs, they didn't, there wasn't really much of a reaction at all. And so Remco thought like they should be clapping more and, and like Remco picks up the mic, which he's only really supposed to use to like ask the band questions or something like that. And he starts berating the crowd with insults, <laughs> telling, telling them they sucked, tell them that, that, that like, that was a really good pavement show and they should appreciate it more that they suck. Okay. And like, I mean, I felt, I mean, Mark actually heard it. I was actually standing backstage because I didn't hear it. Of course, as you know, and Mark heard it. And then he was like, he made this, just this face like, Oh my God, you know, like, like, like excruciating pain face. And then, so I was able to walk into, you know, uh, a little bit out of the dressing room where I could hear him. And it, I mean, it went on for like 45 seconds and like, yes, people left and like, people were like booing. Like, I mean, it was just, a, it was a really bad idea and a nightmare. Um, so yeah, it was that night. I have no idea that anything was recorded that night or saved that. I, I, I bet you I would not be surprised. Yeah, yeah. I bet you this is, uh, this would probably be um, his recording from the soundboard that got released and put on this record, which is kind I of mean- funny. The odd part of that is, you know, the extremeness of, you know, the, the audience kind of standing there stone-faced. I don't get that sense listening to this material. It doesn't read as particularly a flat performance or anything like that. It's a, it's a good pavement performance. No, Remco was right. So the whole tour is, is obviously got to be a little <laughs> bit weird because, that, you know, that's where everything kind of fell apart, right? Um, not really till the end. Was it, was it the very end? I mean, uh, last three gigs, we finished up in the continental Europe in the Netherlands. Then we played Glasgow, Manchester and London. So by the time we got back to the UK and I remember it was really, it was snowing and really, really cold, proper wintry in Glasgow, which happens. I knew that these were the last three shows and I mean, I wanted to go home, so I didn't care what anybody was saying. I mean, I'd been on tour way too long and I, I wanted to go home. If we got back together or didn't, I wasn't really bothered because I, you know, obviously there was time because it was over to talk about what we're going to do next or never do again after those three days. I I didn't see any reason to put any kind of ultimatum on anything, but, but the fact that there would be the good possibility that 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 would be it um, was more than satisfactory for me because either way I was satisfied. Did you know the direction in which your life was going to move yet? Or did you just know that you Oh had- no, no. After payment, okay. I was unemployed for a couple of years until a jockey came and knocked on my door and she asked me to be her agent for the two or so years before that, I probably sent out a hundred resumes for various jobs in the horse racing industry and didn't get any replies to any of them. Zero. Oh. So it's just a, hard industry to break into look i can relate to the masochism because i went to film school i i made two feature films and then as i decided to moonlight as a podcaster as if that's any fucking easier i mean yeah for if you're trying to do it in a way that 
um, it's a business or something like that, or that you're yeah. trying to make a yeah, penny. Yeah, no, no, no. That's, that, that's the direction we are barreling in, not just that's people cool. walking. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I look, mean, I, I, I would have a hard time doing that. Look, here's the thing, man. So before the pandemic happened, I was, I had this job selling hearing aids, which is great. I mean, yeah, yeah, that's cool. You know, I, I do well with it. My wife designed jeans. That was her, you know, she had a career for almost 20 years. Whoa. Then the pandemic happened. She got laid off. Then the really good money that I, that I made was still was not enough to cover us. <clears throat> so I decided to, you know, and as a family mutually decided to pack in a $200,000 a year job so that we can move back to the East Coast I have a, a house in Vermont, but also my parents are in New Jersey and focus on this podcast. Wow. It's going to happen. Now that I have the time to do it, it's going to be full speed ahead now. Excellent. But you know you know what it's like. You achieve the impossible, and then you have to do it all over again in a whole different milieu. Yeah, I mean, in my case, nothing like that's going to happen more than once. In terms of paying your own way, sure. Yeah, but you did it, and it's impressive. But to backtrack, the two signposts that I know of for the disintegration of the unit was after the the show at Coachella in 99. bad. That was bad? Yeah, we're just, we'd been on tour for a really long time and, and Stephen had bad laryngitis and um, I really don't think that many of other people on that bill would have played and uh, we probably shouldn't have. He couldn't really play at all and he, he was very uncomfortable and he, you know, he's basically it was a horrendous performance and we we're supposed to play for 45 minutes we only played for 42 i pretty much had to make an attempt to be the lead singer just so there was some sort of i probably should have let it all be instrumentals <laughs> but yeah it was just a pathetic concert i can't believe they invited us back but i think at least in 2010 we did an adequate show but then at the same time i think they're kind of a serious business and sort of a major success story in american rock festival history which is very checkered in my opinion especially with this flurry of docu of rock documentaries that are coming down the pike now it's clearly obvious of one thing which is that woodstock 69 was the only good festival and everything else was a fucking train wreck in this country perhaps it seems but i've like seen some good ones i've seen um little ones that are good you know and i just think the concept of the the festival is just in this country, all the insurance requirements and there's a lot more to it. There's a lot more freedom when it comes to something like Roskilde in Denmark or Lowlands in Holland or Pukelpop in Belgium or Primavera in Spain and Portugal. Now everywhere it is the ramifications of doing it in this country with all the insurance. And it's just a very expensive proposition. So the best thing to do, I think is like to keep them small, have, six to eight bands or four to six bands. I just think there's a way to do it. I wouldn't want to try to figure it out. I wouldn't want it to be my business. I would never, not really interested in putting that kind of thing together. There's um, a way to do it, but that way is not being done. That's for sure. Well, it's because it's too, it's like, yeah, I mean, it's, Cause it's too. You know, I drive by these like arenas and these things. And like, I see the names of some of these festivals and the lineup on the internet and stuff. And I'm not a 20 year old person or a 15 year old person. So it doesn't really apply to me anymore. Um, but I certainly didn't want to see any of that back then and keep in mind that i was raised during an era in which you could see some pretty supreme live music entertainment for between yeah. like three and 20 bucks i mean right, right. 20 would be like insane i just you know music's so it's not affordable i mean music, right, hard, music hard. is just like it's amazing to me all the people that go see so many bands and spend a huge amount of their teenage or young adult paycheck on seeing their favorite bands it's just 
remarkable. I, I, you know, I, I feel I, badly I, about it. I feel like, you know, I, I mean, like when pavement played first time around the nineties, that's what you should pay to see a pavement concert. Even if we have like a, I must have paid an opening band that can blow us off the stage. I mean, when yeah. I saw you in 92, I must've paid, I, I had to pay eight bucks. Yeah. Maybe something like that. Yeah. So, you know, I'm curious how much of the time that Steven was dragging his fucking feet through this final terror twilight tour that leaving the band and touring with the jicks if that actually solved the problem or if it was same shit different toilet you know a lot of this stuff you're gonna encounter just being in a band right the stuff that makes you miserable i have no idea i tormented jicks and it was a different environment different set of egos different set of personalities how did it differ mainly pavement was you know formed by scott and steven and gary and really scott and steven they went to gary and gary quit and then you know there was always sort of this uh, i mean it's just completely different vibe in their band i mean the first record isn't it called steven malkmus and the jicks where pavement was called pavement it wasn't called steven malkmus and pavement he was clearly the um the main attraction in the jicks and sure he was the main attraction in pavement as well but that's not the way that it was treated or viewed from the stage out to the audience everybody was you know a pretty essential member of the band i count myself a, and i would say so if i wasn't i count myself a definite fan of malcolm's solo stuff right. uh, but i mean if i if, like said i mean for example if i wasn't in the band what are all the guys that um, drink too much lager beer who are they gonna have a crush on that's a valid point <laughs> the couple signpost moments of that tour would probably be the coachella festival that i know of and, and the final i'd say the worst day in pavement history uh, i would actually say even worse than the west virginia Lollapalooza. okay what, what yeah, because it was like the west virginia Lollapalooza actually was like so ridiculous that it was utterly sublime and it was amazing and if anything it it was actually beneficial to our cause and it was a plus rather than a negative. Whereas the Coachella thing in 99 marked the clear cut beginning of the end. Was that your worst performance that you know of? Um, that I was ever a part of in anything in terms of level of quality of performance and, and level of absolute total humiliation. Okay. So that was, the I book. remember, I remember we played that show and like our bus, like we driven like an hour and a half or two hours away. The bus pulled over to, for whatever reasons. And we went out to get like snacks and drinks and stuff. Several different kids that like, came up to me and like, man, like, um, you're one of the dudes in pavement. Right. And I, and I was like, yeah. And they, they were like, are you all right? Are you guys all right, man? Like they're, 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 these kids were like, you know, Huh. Several years ago, I mean, they were ex expressing genuine concern for our mental health after watching wow. that show. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I mean, that was how bad it was. Yeah. Well, I know that <laughs> was... I was like, I'm cool, man. I'm like, I was like, I'm cool. <laughs> Did Malcolmus actually say these symbolize what it's like being in a band all these years when he was wearing those, the handcuffs at Brixton? Probably. He knows what kind of corny stunt he was trying to pull. Then he was trying to be melodramatic. Like you know what i run his own weird pity party at the end of his band i mean that's the kind of that's the kind of dramatic crap that has been pulled throughout rock and roll history that's just like dosh stuff for me that's like i don't want to be part of that you know that's, I mean, that's just like silly man like that's kind of like total self-aggrandizement the first part like first of all you're like lucky to have so much talent lucky to have it be recognized like now you're gonna act like um woe is me i'm gonna buy plastic handcuffs and and <laughs> pretend to have oh, sad that you're it, was a, <laughs> like, it was only plastic handcuffs as far as i could tell uh, i mean I, I actually never really noticed them until i saw the lance bangs documentary 
I mean, whatever, man. I was just like, that's some corny ass stuff. <laughs> Look, that that's basically it. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's November 20, just before Thanksgiving, 1999. About two weeks later, a spokesperson told... A spokesperson? Yeah, some spokesperson for your record label told New Musical Express... <laughs> That's hilarious. Quote, unquote, retired for the foreseeable future. And that was it. You guys didn't quite make it out the 90s, which was absolutely perfect. Completely <laughs> apropos. You know, I got to tell you, I, I was palpably sad. I mean, there's bands that break up and you don't even think twice about it. But that was that was a big one for me and for everyone I knew. And now you have all these, you know, offspring type bands and you must be able to obviously sense the palpable influence bands like yuck and kiwi jr and it must feel good I mean, yeah i mean it, it, yeah it's nice although i don't recommend it i think it's nice that um you know pavement has been frequently mentioned by other musicians as you know being an important part of their musical experience especially when they were young i don't not recommend listening to pavement i just think that you certainly should have a lot more influences than just a handful of bands when you start a band it takes away from your chance if you sound too much like one thing like it's kind of funny that pavement always gets mentioned as a band that gets ripped off a lot because to me, 10 times as many people have, even Pavement in some regard, have ripped off Sonic Youth. 10 times as many people have ripped off R.E.M. Loads of people have ripped off certain major elements of Dinosaur. And hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of influential bands. I mean, that's what rock and roll is all about. I mean, to say that Pavement is more influential than a lot of bands from the same era that were really, really great is just not paying attention to all the bands that sound like Swa or um, Swallow or Tad. Yeah, you guys have something that is very hard to replicate, which is a sensibility. It's one thing to sound like to hard or, you know, can you swing or, but you guys, you know, everything is sausage grindered through a philosophy, which affects everything you guys touch. I mean, that's, I mean, that's a very, very kindly viewpoint that's yours and yours alone. And being on the other side of the, of the stage, I, I could tell you this much that it often felt very important to me. And it probably would have felt important to me just to be on stage because it was such an unusual place for me to be. Um, listening to the records and playing the live shows and you know listening to the music being made in the recording studio you know there's a lot of times where I, I felt like it was very good and that people who cared about pavement itself or just that kind of genre of rock bands during that era would really like the band one of the main reasons why i do this because i you know i've been listening to music like this for many, many years before I started doing the show, which is why I started doing the show. And, you know, the, the main reason why is because if you take an artist's entire discography in chronological order, do research as you're listening to it and really do a deep dive, then you get the benefit of uh, being able to be face to face with the shape of that artist's arc in a way where you can understand them sometimes more than the artists themselves. Because you could see it all in a flash. So, well, perhaps, certainly in my case, I don't think anybody can understand it better than Steven. Well, here's all I got. Here's uh, the little tiny piece I wrote about the overview and shape of your arc. It was 10 years. You can slice it so cleanly, almost right in half. At least I can. You guys really did wind up going way above and beyond the elegant bachelors of yesteryear. I was there, and myself and every single person I knew was cheering you guys on, well, along with MBV, GBV, Sebado, and Real Early Beck. Maybe you didn't mean to be generational mouthpieces, or maybe Stephen knew what he was doing all along and was just being coy about it. 
But either way, pavement was at least the accidental voice of the generation, a voice so hysterically in tune with the times that it couldn't write an anthem for its people to save its own life. It's always felt like the perfect ending to me too, that the band who is the face of Slack, initially at least and only from the outside looking in anyway, couldn't face the snarling demon Y2K with its spirit intact, and so by only a few scant days, never even finished out the decade of which they'd been the mouthpiece. My top three records, I would go number three, Bright in the Corners, number two, Crooked Rain, Crooked Rain, number one, Slanted and Enchanted, uh, my least favorite, and let's be clear, you guys objectively have no bad albums. I would probably go Terror Twilight, even though it's rated higher than Wowie Zowie, but I'd go Terror Twilight. How about you? I don't really think of things that way, because like I mentioned before, it was like five different bands to me, but I'm glad to on Discography. Um, <laughs> uh, Terror Twilight was the, um, to me, that, and you know, keep in mind my opinion of things, I guess, you know, it certainly is music based and, and what I would like if I wasn't in pavement. So it's kind of hard to separate. So it's the combination of both being in the band and also being able to separate myself from it, listen to it as a music fan obviously has ensued over the years since it stopped, which is now, you know, the better part of 23 or something years, you know, with the exception of having to have the pleasure of getting up 2010 and 2022 and play these songs, bring these songs, you know, back to life in some form. So to me, for me, it's quite simple. It's Wowie Zowie's is the most entertaining of the favorite records to me. Um, Slam and Enchanted just because it would be second, just because it's such a, a landmark record. An easy third is Bright in the Corners. A handful of my all-time favorite songs, both live and, and recorded, are on that. It, it was a great experience. And then I would unquestionably say Crooked Rain is my fourth favorite. And then my least favorite is is Terror Twilight, even though I, I like plenty of that material. It's just, yeah. it's not the way I'd ever really want a record to sound, but that's just probably me being like a load of medium fi slave. I mean, I love a lot of things that are beautifully recorded, but I just didn't think that it worked for pavement, even though we had like one of the best guys doing it. And I think he did a great job. I mean, I think he did everything he could with what he had to work with. And that's, that's all he could do as a, as a producer engineer guy. Yeah. And, and so, um, and then clearly, um, watery domestic to me is very essential. And then probably the most underrated of the other things would be that, Give it a day EP. I thought it was just a really, really fun record. Oh, and uh, I DJed that thing the other night, and a woman brought her um, trigger cut Sumi Jack So Stark seven inch, which nice. is, is a lovely thing to own if you're a pavement fan. It's just you know my impression is a bit skewed by by being a part of it, certainly for the live and for a lot of the recording. But um, you know, obviously, it was a marvelous experience. But it's a pleasure to talk about. It, you know, it's great to get your take on it. And it really is, you know, this is the, like I said, the first time that we're doing somebody in the actual band talking about the music. You know, I guess the thing that, you know, made it a relief going into it was knowing that you guys have no bad albums. I mean, you really don't. It's it's a great discography. Um, I, saw I mean, some people would say otherwise. Some people would say that, like, you know, I mean, a lot of people, I know a lot of people that stopped listening to us after Slanted. And then I know a lot of people that really sort of love Wowie Zowie and Bright in the Corners. I think it's just the age you come into it. And then, you know, we're also very well aware of the fact that um, there's a lot of bands, a lot of our favorite bands who really only love their first five records or six records or four records. So it's like, yeah, maybe most bands' shelf life should be 10 eight, 10, 12 years. I mean, it's hard to consistently keep putting out great stuff 
very few bands have ever done it. I don't think I'm a fan of any band that's ever done it. That's put out like 80% great albums over a 25 year period. I mean, that's a big ask. Um, I personally can't think of one, a band off the top of my head. And that's another reason why I was comfortable not doing it anymore. Cause like, like I mentioned before, like would have sullied the whole experience to put out an album that, we were embarrassed by that everybody hated well it worked out pretty damn well i mean just as far as you know you have this uh really cool career malcolmus uh his creative juices are obviously flowing just his last few records his influence pool is still all over the goddamn place he listens to music a lot and that's the other thing like you know when he became kind of frustrated with us he mentioned the fact that not only we weren't playing but we also weren't listening to music so i mean he listens to a lot of music because that's what he loves doing the most or what other side from playing tennis these days. I mean, I can concur that traditional techniques is an outstanding album that um, any fan of his guitar playing and singing should check out. He kind of stamps all of his work with a certain amount of quality. I love real, I love real emotional trash. It's almost like, um, like a Grateful Dead style sprawling classic rock guitar thing. There's some dino in there, but it's definitely like a dead thing too. It's been an impressive solo career and I'm really, really psyched to see you guys as you kick off the tour. You want to talk about the dates and, and all that? Yeah, I think it's going to be good. We're six piece now. Hopefully you'll recover in time from your ills this week. It sounds like you're doing a little bit better. I'm talking to you. Oh, yeah. Not no, the general no. public. Yeah, so yeah, we start San Diego on September 7th, and we work our way up the West Coast and across the Midwest and then up into the Northeast. We'll be on tour, then we swoop down south a little bit at the end. In the States until from like September 7th, like October 11th, and we start up in the UK a few days later in Leeds and then on all over Europe. And then next year we go do a few in Japan and then in Australia. So it'll be a pretty demanding schedule. And Are you on tour for six months? I mean, not really. We're on tour, on tour really for three and a half or four. Then we've got a lengthy break. We go to um, the Pan Pacific. That is so cool. So yeah, it should be fun. I'm really looking forward to it. Then, like like I've mentioned before, the band as a six piece is able to play a lot of songs that we couldn't play, and then also a lot of songs that we played before are greatly enhanced by Rebecca, our sixth member. She's cool. Uh, I'm curious how that affects your you know equestrian responsibilities. I'm fine. I mean, yeah, I know there's always stuff I could do in a mobile fashion in this modern age. <laughs> That's great. I, I'm, I'm very lucky. Is there anything you want to talk about uh, other than pavement? Anything going on in your life that you want to plug or talk about? Not really. I mean, I have a record label called Brokership Records. The website is brokershiprecords.com. Brokership, basically, the goal of the label is to give an opportunity to really great bands that I love that are unsigned. So they, when they go on tour, they've got a piece of vinyl to sell at their gigs and preferably seven inches because I like the portability um, of seven inches and also kind of their length. You can get a taste for the band and you you can get a record for five or six bucks. I mean, I have the website um, sort of to compliment, but the records are really made to be sold at merch booths or from the stage by the bands on the label. It's nonprofit. So I, Put up all the money and then once the band sells a certain amount of records and i'm paid off then all the remaining records are theirs hmm. which is what just service and there's actually a few of the bands like Ronorama is on my label they're, they're opening both the shows in atlanta and i think one or two of the shows in austin and then a really great friend of mine whose name is anna gebhardt she's in a band called anna libera they're really good and she's opening for us in denver kc and st paul so i mean it's cool to give kind of 
unrecognized or unknown artist a chance to play in front of the pavement crowd, which tends to be a pretty open-minded crowd with, you know, like a, a wide berth of different types of music generally, or a lot of them do, and uh, yeah. let them let them see like a band they've never heard of. Um, so there'll, there'll be plenty of that on the tour because we're sort of in the excellent position of not having to have support band that is a draw. And, you know, also we're conscious of the fact, like, we want to see young people. Like, I'm not one of these people that feels like I can only go see bands in my age group. Like, I'm more interested in seeing bands with, you know, teenagers, 20-something, 30-something, whatever, as opposed to, like, men and women my age that I knew about in the 80s. I mean, I, it's cool to have nostalgia and stuff like that, but I refuse to be one of those these people that says, oh, there's nothing cool going on anymore, so... I am going to unhesitantly say you got to you got to dig really deep sometimes to find it. I mean, yeah. It's not like a, it's not like I'm not trying. <laughs> I'm I'm really going after it. I'm listening and you know, part of the issue is, you know, it's less of a focus on songcraft, more of a focus on mood board signifiers as to how something's going to sound. Yeah, I just think there's so much music coming out these days that there aren't enough hours in the day to listen to sure. it. Yeah, I, yeah. To me to me I think there's some really cool stuff so um maybe we at some point we'll exchange playlists of music that's been released the last couple of years that could load you up i would love that i mean a lot frankly you know especially with paul major's introduction in my life everything has taken a slant towards the 1960s 1970s private press because that whole thing is an entire world in itself it's inexhaustible actually so that's taken my focus away a little bit but I, you know i try to i really do i keep up if something catches my attention there's a, a new one recently fabric that I think i've heard of them yeah i have i've listened to yeah i should check them out yeah I think i've heard of them the new one especially you know this notion of the pandemic record where it's not really about the pandemic it's more of a reliance on instead of just a group of songs you get tuning up in between you get maybe them making dinner uh you get some ambient music maybe it's more just a you know loose with the the shoelaces kind of a deal in terms of album format but you know that's interesting to me so you know it's good when when there's new, new directions being taken as long as it's good i don't care i'm not uh, i'm not trying to be a purist anyway man I, Look, I, I can't even thank you enough. I am so incredibly excited to see you guys on this tour. You know, I will definitely make sure I'm better. I'm going to slather my immune system with all kinds of stuff to make <laughs> sure that I'm standing upright for this for this gig. Yeah, I mean, hopefully we'll, um, we'll deliver the goods and put a smile on your face there, buddy. You will. You always do. You guys. Okay, let's hope so. You know, Bob, I you can't. Count your chickens. This is pavement. No, no, that's precisely why. It's precisely why. Once you're on board with you guys, it's a lifer thing. It really is. So, you know, I'll see you there. Uh, our fans, and you're one of them, are, are um, the best thing about it. So, well, you know, always look forward to playing. And it is. sometimes when you don't look forward to playing, then within 30 seconds, um, the enthusiasm in the audience will really uh, give you a lift and get you know, plenty of adrenaline from it. Really enjoy playing for him. I'll be screaming at the top of my fucking lungs. Bro. Easy, dude, man. It'll be easy on your throat, man. <laughs> Fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's okay. You don't, end up, you don't want to end up like this. No, it's all right. Listen, uh, and uh, and most importantly, uh, you know, I have a lot of experience. I'll make sure you're very well fit with good technology, okay? Excellent. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. You're welcome, Bob. Right, I, take care of yourself. See you, see you in Los Angeles. From the bottom of my heart, I'd like to take a minute to thank Bob 
who gave a tremendous amount of time and patience to this undertaking, Scott Canberg, the mensch who hooked me up with him, Aaron Lightco and Matador Records for all their tireless support, and Jake Morris, drummer of Steve Malkmus's band The Jicks and pavement social media maestro and flag waver. And of course, a heartfelt discography thanks goes out to Joe Cravino, who helps with posting the show, Todd Zimmer, who does art and graphics, and my beautiful wife and son, Jen and Mason. We'll catch you next week, then, when Lou Barlow comes on to rate the zombies on next week's incredible episode of Discography. Discography.